1: an hour long program where we'll share a number of reflections from the venerable archbishop Fulton J Sheen on today's broadcast we will share with you uh, a copy of one of his television programs from the 1950s and this uh, program featured the topic of fears and anxieties and oh how we can relate to that fear and anxiety And so uh, he will address us and give us some words of advice. And then we'll spend the second half of our broadcast doing a catechism lesson. Uh, We're on lesson number 15, and it's on the ascension. And so before we listen to these uh, programs, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary... Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Sit back and relax now and enjoy this reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen on fears and anxieties. Enjoy.
2: Friends, Oddly enough, the best way to give you some idea of what we are talking about tonight is to give you the definition of a prune. A prune is a worried plum. <laughs> so I'm going to say something about worry, or more properly, about fear. A little girl went to her daddy once and said, Daddy, are you afraid of cows? No. Are you afraid of snakes? No. Are you afraid of long woolly worms? No. Daddy, you aren't afraid of anything but mom, are you? (laughs) Well, what is fear that so much concerns our modern world? Fear actually is related to love, as all the passions are. And fear is the emotion that arises in us when there is a danger facing something or someone that we love. And the mother has fear for her children. We will talk about various kinds of fear. First of all, fears in the ego, and then fears outside of the ego, but principally dealing with effects. One could give the kinds of fears. Now, first of all, in the ego or in the self, one of the first effects of fears, and this seems very strange, is laziness. Well, how is laziness related to fear? Well, a person so loves his own physical comfort and ease that he's afraid of work very simple. I heard of a, of an old couple down south. The husband was leaning up against the house facing out into the road. The wife was in a rocker but she was facing the house the porch. And she said, what's that noise out in front? He said, that's Jim McCombs' funeral going by. Then he added, yes, he said, about 20 hacks. My, she said, I'd love to see that funeral. I wish I was turned around the other way. <laughs> then, Another effect of fear is gambling. Here I'm speaking of professional gamblers. A professional gambler is one who is afraid of the responsibilities of life. And so he lives in a world of fantasy and dream in which he's always just about to make a great fortune. Two of them were coming home from the racetrack one day and one of them said, you know, today I broke even. And boys, voice that I needed. <laughs> Another is a fact of fear is hypochondria. Uh, there are some people who make themselves mentally sick. Actually, there are cases on record, for example, of men saying, you know, if I had not been sick, I would have been one of the greatest tennis players in America. Or if I had not been sick, I would have written the finest novel that was ever produced in America. Or if I were not sick, I would have been a millionaire and so forth. Now, it's very likely that he became sick, made himself really sick, in order to avoid facing the responsibility of his own boats. In the San Francisco earthquake, there were 30 people who hadn't walked in 30 years, got up and walked. Then another effect of fear is um, lying. Some who have a feeling of deep inferiority discover that by boastfulness and exaggeration that they uh, convince others of their importance. I know of a little girl that was always lying. She was given a St. Bernard dog. Once I once had a St. Bernard dog. He had the instinct of a lap dog and the instep of a rhinoceros. (laughs) Well, this little girl was given a St. Bernard dog, and she went out and told all the neighbors she had been given a lion. And her mother called her and said, Now, listen! I told you not to lie, you go upstairs, tell God you're sorry. Promise God that you will not lie again. So she went upstairs and said her prayers, and when she came down, the mother said, Did you say your prayers? Did you tell God you were sorry? The little girl said, Yes, I did. And God said that sometimes he finds it hard to tell a dog from a lion. (laughs) (laughs) Then another effect is what is called shamefacedness. Or red-facedness, embarrassing moments. Take, for example, the woman taken in adultery mentioned in the gospel. Here there is a fear of having one's reputation and honor either destroyed or exploited. I once knew of a man who was seated next to a very charming lady at a banquet table. He had just met her at the table. And for want of something better to say, he saw someone in the far end of the room whom he knew. And calling the attention of the lady, he said, see that man down there? Yes, said the lady. He said, you know, I hate him. And she, in righteous indignation, said, I beg to tell you, that is my husband. (laughs) And he said, madam, that's why I hate him. Not everybody gets out of difficulties quite so easily. (laughs) Now, these are the effects of fear in the ego. What happens to us? Now, there are other effects of fear because of what happens to us. Take, for example, something that happens to us because of its magnitude. Sunset in the Mediterranean, the sight of the Alps. Or the two infinities that always made Pascal wonder, the infinitely little and the infinitely great. The effect of magnitude is to create in one wonder. Wonder is the beginning of all philosophy. Aristotle tells us that. It's the beginning of all philosophy. Because it makes us ask, no, my angel needn't bother now uh, washing away this because I I suppose he wondered why we got over here, but we got a little signal to move. I was facing the wrong camera. (laughs) Then another effect of fear is when something is very unexpected. Think, for example, the explosion of an atomic bomb. And, or something unexpected that's happening to me now. These two clocks are not exactly alike and I'm wondering just on what second I'm going to finish. So if you'll give me a signal. <laughs> so, will the angel flutter around me and tell me sometime which clock I'm to follow? <laughs> Such as the explosion of an atomic bomb creates stupor. And the third effect, and this is very important, is where there is something that happens to us in which we feel helpless. And that creates what is known as anxiety. There is a tremendous disproportion between our own resources and the hostile forces that oppose us. This anxiety is rather normal particularly in the physical order. And here we leave these old descriptions of they are very old. I might tell you that I got all of this out of a book that was 700 years old. But there's a new kind of anxiety. And now I'm just a little anxious about my angel cleaning my blackboard. And as soon as he does, I will come back to you to tell you about the new kind of anxiety. This new kind of anxiety is very modern. And it is the anxiety with which uh, many psychiatrists and psychoanalysts deal is an anxiety that is rather abnormal than normal. The normal anxiety is something that makes us afraid because of what happens on the outside, that is to say outside of us. The abnormal anxiety, and this is a very modern one, makes us fear because of something that happens inside of us. The first kind of anxiety is physical. The second kind of anxiety is mental or psychical. These are very normal fears. For example, fright during a thunderstorm, being chased by a bull on the farm, danger of being struck in traffic. But the new anxieties are coming from the inside of man himself from whence they should never come. The result is too many modern minds are very much like this. This is the conscious part of their existence and down here is the unconscious and the unconscious is seething with all kinds of repressions, there are even coiled serpents in that unconscious and subconscious mind. They are constantly striving for some kind of release. There are many effects that are produced by this abnormal anxiety or fear, and of them we will mention three. The first is what is known a compulsion neurosis. Did you ever hear about the woman who lived in a bed of neurosis? <laughs> I'll give you a minute to get that. <laughs> First of all, a compulsion neurosis is something that we are forced to do because we have not done what we ought to do. This is one of the very common Manifestations of subjective anxiety. I could think of no better way to describe it uh, than to take the description that was given by Shakespeare. You remember the great tragedy of Macbeth? And in that magnificent story, Lady Macbeth encourages her husband to murder the King Duncan while he sleeps. In order that he might seize the crown and be the king. When he does it, he's frightened and afraid. Lady Macbeth says to him, think not on these ways, for they will drive you mad. In other words, do not think of your guilt press it and repress it. Lady Macbeth then kills the grooms, smears them with her own blood, and she says to Macbeth, Now, my hands are your color, but I should shame to wear a heart so white making fun of anyone who had a guilty conscience. Lady Macbeth's conscience is asleep while she is awake. So many in our world who are constantly repressing the sense of guilt. But While Lady Macbeth sleeps, her conscience is awake. She walks in her sleep. She sees blood in her hands, at least she thinks she does. She says, will not all the perfumes of Arabia sweeten this little hand? Will not great Neptune's oceans wash away these stains? Nay, rather, they will the multitudinous seas incarnadine." Turning the green one red. And for a quarter of an hour at a time she would wash her hands. That was the compulsion neurosis coming from the fear of punishment because of the guilt of murder. Instead of purifying her conscience, the compulsion neurosis came out in the washing of the hands. As it does in so many compulsion neurosis in our modern world. That's the first effect. And the second effect of this wrong, subjective fear and anxiety is terror. Terror is the fear that comes from being terrorized. Terror is something that seizes the persecutor. Whenever you find a man who has been cruel to others, he always lives in terror. I was talking to one of the greatest artists in the world, and I asked him when he came to America what he considered the most interesting face in America that he saw. And he mentioned the name of the then representative of the Soviet Union and the United Nations. He said, his face intrigues me. If I were painting it, I should paint a skull. And we know that some of their representatives, when they leave our hotels in New York, Leave sometimes their guns under the pillows, bullets in the night tables. Terror. Terror because they know they have taken the lives of many and have been responsible. And there's no blotting out a guilty conscience, though they deny both God and conscience and morality. And then finally there is horror. This modern thing of horror or other dread red is the fear of nothing. Think of how many there are in our world today who have no sense whatever of a plan of life. They are, if I may describe it, something like this. I'm telling you what, this is a ship. This is a, uh, a mast to the ship. This is the water of the ship. This is a crow's nest. No respectable crow would ever be seen in it either. <laughs> and. That's the ladder going up to it, and here's my usual man, the only kind of man that I can draw. I'll get another art scholarship for this one. The modern man does not know where he's going. He's not certain of his destiny. This is a storm at sea, and he's always in danger of being thrown back into the nothingness from which he came. And so he lives in a terrible sense of dread. He's fearing the wrong things, our modern man. Much of modern culture is destined... To try and suppress that dread. Sleeping tablets, opiates, constant love of pastime and pleasures. All these are attempted to suppress this awful gnawing feeling of nothingness and the dread of nothingness. Why is it that a cow never has dread? A pig never has a psychosis. A hen never has a neurosis. Why is it none of these things have dread? simply because none of these things in lower creation, nothing below man, has a soul who's born for the infinite. It takes eternity to make a man despair. And if they only knew it, as I said, they're fearing the wrong things. We used to fear God, then we began to fear fellow man. And now, We begin to fear what? We begin to fear ourselves, something that we should never fear. How will they get out of it? They will get out of it by realizing that fear is the pathway to peace. But there are two kinds of fear. There's the servile fear and there's a filial fear. Servile fear is a fear of punishment, which they all have, a fear of judgment. The filial fear is a fear of reverence. For example, servile fear. The child disobeys the mother and goes to the mother and said, Mommy, I'm sorry I, I did wrong. Now I can't go to the picnic, can I? And the other child just throws her arms around the mother's neck and cries. And said, Mommy, I'm sorry I hurt you. Servile fear or the fear of punishment or the dread can be the starting point for filial fear or the fear of reverence. All who have dread have within themselves a longing. They all have misery. What they need and what they want is mercy. And if therefore they will face love itself or perfect love, cast out fear, then they will come indeed. Indeed. To someone whom they will love so much that they will be honest and good and just. Not because they dread punishment, but simply because they have reverence for someone whom they love. No one will ever be good over a long period of time simply because he's told to keep a law. He will be good, only because he would not want to hurt someone that he loves. Why be good? Because there comes to one the sight of wounded hands and riven feet. There comes to one a picture of one who has been hurt, and so he tries to be good. Because we love God, and we love him so much, we do not want to hurt him. That is the end of faith.
1: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection you can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com you will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today. 1-866-357-4336 Again, one 866 357 4336 and on the web www.bishopsheen.com and on behalf of
0: bishop sheen god love you you are listening to radio maria canada we now continue with the program your life is worth living hosted by al smith hello radio maria family
1: and welcome once again to another edition of your life is worth living I hope you enjoyed that reflection on fear and anxiety and uh, put you at peace. And that's one thing that Fulton Sheen does so well. He has a calming effect and just makes clear to us those complex problems and uh, almost makes us think, what was I worrying about after all? I shouldn't have wasted so much time fearing and being anxious. And so now let us uh, turn to our catechism lesson We're on lesson number 15 of a 50-part series, and uh, the Venerable Fulton Sheen will now uh, speak to us on the topic of the Ascension. Please enjoy.
2: Peace be to you. In this lesson, we consider the Creed, particularly those words that refer to the Ascension of our Blessed Lord and the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. After the resurrection, our blessed Lord remained 40 days on earth. During that time, he instructed the apostles about the kingdom of God and laid the structure for his mystical body, the church. Moses had fasted 40 days before giving the law, and Elias had fasted 40 days before the restoration of the law. Now for 40 days, the risen Savior laid the pillars of the church and the new law of the gospel. Forties were about to end, and the apostles were bidden to await the fiftieth day, which was the day of Jubilee. When the Thursday came for the ascension of our divine Savior, he led his apostles out to Mount Olivet, not from Galilee, but from Jerusalem, where he had suffered would he leave earth for his heavenly father. Sacrifice was now completed. He gathers his apostles about him as he prepares to ascend to the heavenly throne. He raises his hands in benediction over them. And the hands that were pulled down from heaven to earth to give them that blessing bore the imprint of nails. pierced hands best distribute blessings. If you ever want good counsel, go to someone who has suffered. Scripture now speaking of the resurrection. These are not all the texts, but just one or two. And even as he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and is seated now at the right hand of God. There are several words here which need explanation, such as the fact that our blessed Lord ascended, that he is seated, and that he is at the right hand of the Father. Uh, the ascension we are not to think of as a local motion. We are not to think of our blessed Lord, for example, as going beyond the Father's star. Or to think of him as being so many millions of light years away? Or are we to think of him as going up from one point to another? And certainly not. Are we to envisage him and the ascension as a form of space travel? Our blessed Lord once had a descent, that is to say, came down from heaven. But that really did not mean a physical descent. It was... Rather, at drawing the side of the veil in which divinity was revealed to humanity, so too the ascension is not like a rocket. Our blessed Lord is no closer to heaven when he passes, for example, if we imagined him passing the planet Arcturus. Rather, the ascent and the descent that are mentioned in the creed and in Christian doctrine refer rather to humiliation and exaltation. When our blessed Lord came to this earth, he humbled himself. When he ascended into heaven, he was exalted. And that is the way the scripture always speaks of him. He ascended into heaven because he had humbled himself and was made obedient to the death of the cross. But what does the word seated mean? That he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The word seated here means... Repose after conflict. The cross is left behind with all of its dust and thirst and struggle and pain. Being seated does not mean that our Lord is passive. You remember in the book of Genesis, God was said to have rested after creation. Did that mean he was tired? Certainly, it did not imply that his creative arm was weary. Our blessed Lord seeks not to recuperate, but because his work is done. On the cross, our blessed Lord said, it is finished. All the types and figures and symbols of the Old Testament had now been completed. Every word of scripture had been fulfilled. There is no other mediator. The cross is the perpetual atonement and satisfaction for the sins of men. As our Lord had said to the apostles, I have finished the work. Rather, praying to his heavenly Father, he said, I have finished the work that thou hast given me to do. That is the meaning of our Lord being seated. But what does it mean to say that he is at the right hand of the Father? Well, the right hand implies power. And it means, therefore, that he is the power of God and has power throughout the universe. The right hand does not mean a physical nearness. It means a sharing of glory. Our Lord is acting as a mediator between God and man. That is his power. The ascension of our blessed Lord is described in sacred scripture too as a high priest entering the sanctuary beyond the veil. That is a rather unusual expression, beyond the veil. What does it mean? It refers to something in the Old Testament. The temple of Jerusalem and the tabernacle in the desert before it had, hanging before the Holy of Holies, a veil. It was very heavy, gorgeous, mysterious. It was hung and suspended according to the pattern that was given on the mount. It was highly embroidered, of purple, blue, scarlet, and finely twisted linen and then the golden cherubim were woven into it. All of that is described in the book of Exodus. Now behind that veil lay enshrined the gorgeous symbols of Jewish history and Jewish faith. Behind it was the Holy of Holies. The priest was allowed to enter that Holy of Holies only once a year. And then only after he had purified himself with blood and sprinkled this veil with blood. When this happened, the people had for one brief moment some communication thanks to their priest with this Holy of Holies. But for the rest of the year, it was hidden. And from behind that veil, the sound of bells and the rustle of the beautiful vestments of the priest and the movement of feet. There was some dim adumbration of a mystery. But what must the Jews have said to themselves as they looked at that veil? They knew they could not enter it. They must have said, Separated, it, separated. It. Cut off we are from God. That sentiment must have continued in the heart of every true man of the Old Testament. Now, the veil in the New Testament is called the flesh of our Lord. When our blessed Lord died on the cross, that veil of the temple was rent asunder. It was rent from top to bottom, as if to indicate that it was not done in any way by the hand of man. In other words, this barrier between heaven and earth, between God and man, was now destroyed. Thanks to the death of Christ, there was access to heaven, access to the heavenly Father. There might have been indeed some symbolism in the fact that the centurion pierced the side of our blessed Lord, or as I said, sacred scripture calls his flesh the veil. And when that side was pierced, there was indeed revealed the Holy of Holies, which was the heart of the all-loving God. But in any case, sinful humanity before the redemption could never enter behind that veil. Now Christ took upon himself our human nature. He bore it, he lived it, he died in it, and he resumed it after he had laid it down. He glorified it, and he broke down that middle wall of partition between God and man. And thus he made peace. I look down to my nature laden with sin, I despair. I look up to Christ's nature. It is now risen. And descended, and I'm full of joy. I look to my own nature and I see my helplessness. I look up to Christ's nature, I see my hope. I look down to my nature, see my sin. I look up to his and I see his holiness. And it is that holiness of the human nature of Christ that has risen now to heaven. What does it mean to us? It means many things, but we will just mention two. One, it means that a human nature like ours is in heaven. Think of it. The model of what our body will be if we live in it the very life of Christ. Secondly, it means that we have a high priest in heaven who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he once bore our human lot. First, we say there's a human nature in heaven. When God came to this earth, he took upon himself a human nature. That human nature, we said, was thrown into the fires of Calvary in reparation for the sins of man. Risen, and now ascends. So that there is a continuity between the incarnation and the ascension. In the incarnation, our Lord took a body, yes, but not just a body to suffer. Otherwise, he would have taken it for a time. If he took that human nature just in order to suffer for our sakes, why did he not divest himself of that human nature? After all, his garments had been soiled and stained. They had borne the heat and burdens of the day. Why not throw them off? No, because human nature was taken not just to atone for our sins, The end and purpose of God coming to this earth was to bring us to perfect union with the Father. And how could he do this? By showing that our flesh is not a barrier to that intimacy. By taking it up to heaven itself. By showing that those who pass through trials, suffering, whatever they be in this life, misunderstanding, will have their body glorified. By sharing in Christ's cross, we share in his glory. The goal of all humanity is in some way reached in the ascension. That's the full beauty of our Lord returning again to the Father. He brought back with him something that he did not have when he came to this earth. He brought his divinity, yes, he took his divinity back with him. But he also took something else back. He took back the human nature. And the most blessed and wonderful truth is taught. In that fact, remember our Lord reiterated it when he was talking to Caiaphas, and he told him that one day he would see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power. In other words, that human nature that was so humiliated is no longer a humiliated human nature. It's now glorified. His ascension is the true carrying of that real humanity, complete in all of its parts, body and soul, up to the very throne of God. That is the purpose of the Incarnation, to be our model, to be our pattern. In a certain sense, because He's the new Adam in heaven, you and I are there. We are not yet there actually but we are there potentially so long as we remain in the state of grace on this earth. But that's not the only reason he took with him a human nature. He also took a human nature in order that he might be able to sympathize with our own weaknesses. The epistle of the Hebrews as a beautiful text on this point it reads it is not as if our high priest was incapable of feeling for us in our humiliations he has been brought through every trial fashioned as we are only sinless our blessed lord therefore in heaven is our high priest he is our mediator He's one who can understand us. He's not apart from us. Because he had our human nature. That human nature, when it was on this earth, was so sensitive that it was thrilled by the beauty of a lily. It was moved with the fall of a wounded sparrow. It was keenly touched by anything that could touch a human heart, whether high or low, good or bad, friend or enemy. No man can be beyond the reach of that all-comprehending sympathy, because no man can ever be beyond the embrace of that love. He can sympathize with the poor, because he was poor, with the weary and the heavy laden, because he has been tired and worn, with the lonely and misrepresented and persecuted, simply because he has been in that position, because he was tried, tried in mind as well as in heart, tried by fear, by sad surprise, by mental perplexity, with a hard conflict with evil, great spiritual depression, he's able to feel to the uttermost With the keenest sorrows of our earthly lot. And the beauty of it all is that this tried one is without sin. And that is what enabled him to drink in sympathy, and nothing but sympathy in all sorrows, simply because he was without sin. So that we have a human nature, therefore, in heaven, a pattern human nature, that knows all of our weaknesses and all of our trials. What a beautiful hope this is to all. A high priest who can understand our infirmities. Now that he's taken this human nature, now that it is in glory at the right hand of the Father, what does he do there? Has he a work? Certainly. He's a mediator. We might almost say that he's constantly showing his scars to his Heavenly Father. And he's saying, see these, I was wounded in the house of those that love me. I love men. I suffered for them. Forgive them, Heavenly Father. He is our sacrifice. He's ever-present before the Father. As Scripture puts it, ever-making intercession for us. You see, we very often get a wrong understanding of the life of our blessed Lord. We think of him as just living on this earth, preaching the Beatitudes and suffering. No, our blessed Lord did not come down just for that. He is living making intercession for us, the representative of all who invoke him. Certainly, he has finished the work of justice on earth because he paid the debt of sin, but the work of mercy in heaven is unfinished. That goes on and on. And the reason it goes on is because we need his intercession. I would very much like to continue speaking of this mystery of the ascension. But we ought to treat one other little point in the creed, namely, that from heaven our Lord will come to judge the living and the dead. Our Lord on this earth said he would come to judge the world. No other teacher ever said that. And he said that as the judge, he would return seated on a throne of glory, attended by angels to judge all men according to their works. Imagination recoils at the thought of any human being able to penetrate into the depths of consciences, to fetter out the hidden motives, to pass judgment on them for all eternity. But this final judgment... Is not hidden from the eyes of God as well as man. And Scripture puts it, "Brothers, our Lord put it, and then the sign of the Son of Man will be seen in the heaven. Then it is that all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud blast of the trumpet to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. When he comes, it will not be judged to judge a mere circumscribed area of the earth in which he labored and revealed itself. It will be to reveal himself and to judge all nations and all empires. When that time is, nobody knows. He refuses to tell us. He only says that it will be sudden. Be sudden like a flash of lightning. He, the Savior, is the judge. What a beautiful way to have a judgment. Can you imagine any earthly judge saying to a criminal before him, You are guilty. I am going to take all of your sins and crimes upon myself. I will suffer for you. What a judge he would be. But our blessed Lord took upon himself all of our sins as we stood before the bar of divine justice. And he who suffered for us will come to judge us. And what a judgment it will be when we will see one who loved us so much. And as the Gospel of Matthew puts it, and he will sit down upon the throne of his glory, and all nations will be gathered in his presence, where he will divide men one from the other, as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those who are on his right hand come you have received a blessing from my father. Take possession of the kingdom which has been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Thirsty And you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you brought me home. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you cared for me. A prisoner, and you came to me. Whereupon the just will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw thee hungry and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee to drink? When was it that we saw thee a stranger and brought thee home or naked clothed thee? And the king will answer them, Believe me, when you did it to one of the least of my brethren here, you did it to me. Then he will say to those who are on his left hand, Go far from me, you that are accursed into that eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you never gave me food. I was thirsty, and you never gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you did not bring me home. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not care for me. Whereupon they in their turn will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw thee hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to thee? And he will answer them, Believe me. When you refused it to one of the least, my brethren here, you refused it to me, and these shall pass on to eternal punishment, and the just to eternal life. Such is the Gospel of Matthew, and the story of the return of our Lord. The point now is that our blessed Lord took upon Himself a pattern human nature. That human nature was something like a die that a government makes when it wishes to mint coins. When the die is fashioned, millions of coins can be fashioned like unto it. Christ our Pattern man was born, he suffered, he overcame temptations, he rose from the dead and was glorified at the right hand of the Father. We are the coins. Because he was born, we are to be born, not physically, but spiritually. Because he denied himself and suffered, we are to deny ourselves. The cross becomes the condition of the empty tomb. Once our life is patterned upon his crucifixion, then our life shall be patterned also upon his glorious resurrection and his glorious ascension. Are we as coins? He will ask for coins and he will say, whose inscription is there on? Is it Caesar's? Do we belong to the world? Or do we belong to God? May it be so.
0: God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello Radio Maria family and thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I want to thank my good friend Anthony from FultonSheen.com who has made these quality recordings available to us today. You can visit his website www.FultonSheen.com and there is a full Sheen library for you to download and have for your own enjoyment. And so... I would ask you to support him. Again, www.FultonSheen.com for a complete uh, digital library of the works of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And so, until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly
0: and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living hosted by Al Smith here on Radio Maria Canada.